at them. And so this preacher got off the plane. Nobody knew who he was, really. He waved because it was a chance to give an invocation at one of the greatest races in the NASCAR circuit. And Tony George sent a car to pick them up and take them to the pagoda where his uh, personal suite is. He gave them pit passes and garage passes. And so before the race, they got to meet all these celebrity racers and uh, to talk with them and then to go to the pagoda. And all through the race, there was a smorgasbord, a buffet that was spread out for them. And when it was all over, uh, Tony George personally walked them back uh, to the helicopter pad. But on the way, he opened up the museum there and gave them a personal tour of all the old race cars and the memorabilia that were there. Now, Howard Brammer was a preacher, and he says, reflecting on it, the whole time I felt a little bit out of place, kind of like a fish out of water, because that, that's nothing like the normal way that we travel. We don't hang out with people that are in the owner's box at the Speedway, uh, Howard was born in a small steel town on what he would say was the wrong side of the tracks. All the rich kids lived on the other side of the tracks. And, and he got to go to school with them, but they, they never really uh, were friends. And because of that, he grew up for most of his life feeling less than them. And maybe you understand what he felt like. I think there's a reason many of us, and I personally have never felt quite good enough in life, I, I think there's a lot of us that experience that who have some abiding sense of inferiority or a realization that there's always somebody better, uh, somebody more eloquent, somebody faster, somebody uh, along with that sense of, uh, of a stronger moral nature than us, and we feel inferior. You see, we know our guilt. We, we know our faults. We know our weaknesses, and we know our inadequacies as well. And so the scripture that I'd like for you to turn to this morning, it's just an absolutely wonderful scripture that speaks to that. I want you to turn to Luke, the second chapter in scripture this morning. And, and uh, I don't know if you ever read from a different paraphrase or translations, but sometimes if you do, it has a way of making the scripture come to life for you. And so I want to be reading this morning from, from the message paraphrase. And I'm going to invite you to follow along with me in Luke chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 8. The scripture there says, There were sheep herders camping in the neighborhood. They had set night watches over their sheep, and suddenly God's angels stood among them, and God's glory blazed around them. They were terrified. And the angels said, Don't be afraid. I'm here to announce a great and joyful event that is meant for everybody worldwide. A Savior has just been born in David's town. A Savior who is Messiah and Master. And this is what you're to look for. A baby wrapped in a blanket and lying in a manger. At once the angel was joined by a huge angelic choir singing God's praises. Glory to God in the heavenly heights. Peace to all men and women please him. Now there's a, a title above that section in, in the message, and I want to make that my first point this morning, and that is very simply, uh, to participate in Jesus' arrival, it really is an event for everyone. Christmas is meant for everyone. The shepherd of Jesus' day were generally people that were very despised. Now I think when we think of shepherds, because of our familiarity maybe with the 23rd Psalm. We think of shepherds differently where it, where it says, the Lord is my shepherd. 
I want for nothing. He, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He refreshes my soul. And all that, of course, is absolutely true. And that is an image from David's time. And that's a thousand years before Jesus. And by the time we get to Jesus' day, shepherds were not the respected people in society. They were rough characters, and part of that was is that they had to be tough because they had to protect their sheep from wild animals and disease and robbers. They were guys who slept outside, and they weren't glampers like many people are today. They didn't have nice little camping trailers or even cool little pop-up tents that popped up. These were people who, who slept outside, and maybe they had a rain fly, but they had to make do. They were unkempt, and they might have not had a bath for months. The robe that they wore was probably their only robe, and so between the sheep and the sweat, they smelled. These were not the kind of guys you wanted your daughter to bring home for the holidays to meet you. They were poor, and the people of the land often thought of them as just day laborers. They weren't known for being particularly religious people either because they had to work on the Sabbath. And because of their work, they were unclean. They could never celebrate the Jewish festivals or ceremonies. And so the Jewish Orthodox ostracized them for that. And maybe more important, they were thought to be dishonest. You see, most shepherds were migrants. They moved their flocks around, and as they did, they pilfered, survived off the produce of the land, and they were thought of like gypsies are today or, or Irish travelers. And I hope you've never had the experience before, but maybe you've talked to someone who did or you saw a 2020 special about it. Uh, it's like the two guys that come and knock on your door, and they have that business, they'll coat your blacktop driveway at a too-good-to-be-true price, and it really is. And the people who, who take their offer and have their driveways done find that the first time it rains, that blacktop washes off. Or they'll knock on your door and offer to help fix your roof at a cut-rate price, and they do a slap job, and then they're gone, and you try to reach them, but they're already in the next state. And they develop this reputation for being dishonest. That's what shepherds did. They would often work for months without supervision, and that meant when the little lambs were born, they could take them and sell them themselves. Let's say you went to Fairfield Mall today or, or to the Green, and as you parked and got out of your car, somebody came up to you and said, Psst, hey, hey, I, I got a great deal for you. I got a brand new laptop for 150 bucks. You might be a little suspicious of that, and people were warned in Jesus' day not to buy wool, milk, or lambs from shepherds. They weren't allowed to be witnesses in court because it was assumed that they would always lie. One historian said that there's no more disreputable occupation than that of a shepherd. They were lowlifes, they were the, the unkempt, unthought of, and they were the outcast of their day. And as I look at their lives and what people thought of them, I wonder if Jesus were to come today, if he were to be born for the first time within our world, if the angels today were going to make an announcement of Jesus' coming somewhere in the world, where would that be? And to whom? Who were the most downtrodden that you could think of? Maybe a Cleveland Browns practice or something. I don't, I don't know. No, I know, peace on earth, goodwill to all men. Uh, but this is a great account. 
These poor, unkempt, smelly, irreligious, disreputable, disrespected men, it was to them that the first announcement of Jesus' birth came. You know, I, I find the Bible speaks to us in, in various ways. Sometimes it speaks in statements of truth, and sometimes it gives us accounts where that truth is played out. Sometimes it will say straightforward verses like Romans 5.8, that God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, for the ungodly. It's an absolutely true and wonderful truth. And then I hear truths like 1 Corinthians 1, that the message of the cross, it's foolishness to those that are perishing. But to us that are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And then later, for the foolishness of God, it's wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And you see that played out so often in the Christmas story, in the shepherd's story. The whole Christmas story is filled with stories of how God touches those of us who feel in our own hearts and minds like outcasts, like we don't belong, like we're set aside. We mentioned Mary last week and that beautiful song that she sung in, in, in Luke chapter one, Mary's Magnificat. And here we have a common teenage girl Chosen to be the bearer of Christ in the world. And she said that verse from last week in verse 53. He filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. You see, if you feel like your life is just on the top, like your life is on cruise control, that everything goes well for you, you're gifted with friends, you're gifted knowing that you're competent, you're controlled, your career is going well, your finances are stable, everything and everyone around you is doing well, then you could take your American Express Platinum card and you can go shopping at the green. But if you actually are honest with yourself and you realize that deep within there is a sense that I just need to celebrate more. I need joy. I need the fruit of the Holy Spirit to be evident in, in my life. If that's you, then this is a powerful story and an absolutely beautiful message because God fills the hungry with good things. Luke 2.9 says, Suddenly, God's angels stood among them. God's glory blazed around them, and they were terrified. And here's the second point I want you to catch this morning. To see God's glory, it can be terrifying, but it is so attractive. The brightness was more than just mega candle power. We're talking about the radiance of God's own glory. It was splendor. It was majesty. In the Old Testament, when Moses recorded, he said in Exodus 24, 17, that to the Israelites, the glory of God looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. In Haggai 2.7, God spoke of his glory when he said, I will shake the nation and what is desired by all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. I think that night for the shepherds, the hillside was completely lit up and, and their response, it's predictable. They're terrified, but it was the announcement that calmed the shepherds I'm here to announce a great and a joyful event that is meant for everybody worldwide. 
This baby is not just for Mary and for Joseph. It's for the shepherds. He's there for you. He's there for me. For everybody and anyone's benefit. And the angel spoke a sign. This is what you're to look for. A baby wrapped in a blanket and lying in a manger. Now, in most versions, you'll find that he was wrapped in strips of cloth, like bandages that were common for that day. If you were to visit any baby in Bethlehem or the surrounding area, that's the way the babies would have been wrapped in strips of cloth. But it would have been the only baby that you would find in a manger, a feeding trough for cattle. Just another part of how our God touches the common and changes everything. In verse 15 of our passage day, it says, the angel choir withdrew into heaven. The sheep herders talked it over. Let's get over to Bethlehem as fast as we can and see for ourselves what God has revealed to us. They left running and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Seeing was believing. And they told everyone they met what the angels had said about this child. And all who heard the sheep herders were impressed. Now how was it that they found this baby? Well, they didn't go door to door in the middle of the night because they knew that's not where you would find a manger. They went stable to stable to find Christ himself. And don't you wonder what the baby looked like? When the shepherds looked at this little newborn, what was it like? Did, did, did Jesus have a little halo around his head like most of our, our Christmas cards have? Was, was he wrinkled and pink and prunish like most babies? Most likely most babies are. Was he the most beautiful baby ever? You ever visit a family member or visit a friend who's just had a newborn? This, this child they've waited for for eight months and you look at this child, and of course, every parent here, you know, you, there's never going to be a child as beautiful as the child you had, right? But let's say you look at this child for the first time, and it's obviously not the cutest baby in the world. What do you say? Well, I found five things that you can say, and I want to share them just as a way of wisdom with you this morning. Number one, if you, you, you look at your friend or family member's baby, and it's, it's not the cutest baby in the world, you can say, your baby is breathtaking. That's, that's the same as saying your baby looks like a naked mole rat, okay? I'm just saying. Number two, you could say, you know babies always look just like their daddy, don't they? <laughs> Number three, you could say, wow, he, he's, wow, what a baby. Okay, number four, if you see that newborn for the first time at the wrong time, you could say, wow, how did I end up in the delivery room? You're too early, okay? Number five, this one. If you're from the South or you have family from the South, you know this. If you see a child that's not the cutest child in the world, what do you say? Bless his little heart. That's right. You know, I think of all the times my mom said that to me growing up, and now I know <laughs> what she was really trying to say. What kind of baby was Jesus? Was he the cutest? I only know that as an adult, Isaiah said this in Isaiah 53 too. He had no beauty, no majesty to attract us to him and nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Hmm. You see, what if Jesus had rock star good looks? It would have been that that attracted people, not the truth of who he was. 
See, what I think attracted people to Jesus was his relationships. I think it was the way that he loved. I think it was the way that he taught as one with authority. I think it's the way that he prayed and he spoke to his heavenly father with an intimacy like no one else had. So different. And I rather suspect that Jesus was an ordinary baby in his physical appearance. But certainly the angels knew he was different. In verse 17, it speaks of the shepherds and says, they told everyone that they met what the angels had said about this child. And all who heard the sheep herders were impressed. The NIV says, amazed. Here's the last point. You see, I think to receive God's grace is to become a messenger of his favor. Can you imagine these crazy shepherds running through Bethlehem that night just laughing? And you know that these shepherds, they were unfiltered men. You know anybody like that? They speak before they think, and and, and they wouldn't have been polite. They didn't have the best mannerisms or manners. They're not cultured people. They're just spilling over with a great sense of celebration and joy at the news of what had just happened. They'd never had some sit-down course of how to be witnesses for God. They just received God's grace. It came to them, the outcast of society. And this story just flowed that night to everyone they met. The conclusion comes in verse 19 and 20. When Mary kept all these things to herself, holding them dear, deep within herself, the sheep herders returned and let loose, glorifying and praising God for everything that they'd heard and seen. It turned out exactly the way They've been told. The final scene of this story is of shepherds climbing back up the hill, going back to rejoin their flocks, and they're just letting loose. The climax of their story is a human chorus of voices adding to a heavenly choir, praising God. You know, when I think of Christmas and the blessing we have, the blessing that the choir sung about this morning, we are so blessed to have the presence of Jesus with us. Amen? We are so blessed to have the glory of God rest upon us that started with Mary and Joseph, these common people, and then the announcement made to separate even more common people. 1 Samuel 2, 8 declares, he raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and he makes them inherit a throne of honor. We don't even have time this morning to talk about the Magi from the East. In Matthew 2, it, it simply says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the East to Jerusalem and they asked, where's the one who's been born, the King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come We've come to worship him. You know, don't miss who they were, though, as you hear their story in days to come. We think of them as kings. We even have a song that talks about we three kings of Orientar. But, but really, they're magi. They're, they're wise men. They're astronomers and they're astrologers. Literally, these were men who dabbled on the edge, on the dark side. These were people who did not start out squarely in the camp of God but they were invited to find out what truth was really all about. Friends, we are so blessed to get that invitation. You know, several years ago, I was asked to take part 
in a uh, Memorial Day service in Florence, Kentucky at a large cemetery. And when I went there, they were putting together this uh, makeshift stage for the ceremony. And it it was so disappointing. Uh, They had not set up the stage beforehand, and they were kind of scrambling at the last minute to get it done so we could actually have the service. The sound system was hastily wired together, and it had issues all through this Memorial Day service, I mean, right from the start. There were chairs that they had set up in front of the stage in, in the sun, and nobody wanted to sit on hot metal chairs in the sun, and so they went back under the shade trees, and they were totally disconnected from what was actually taking place on the stage. And several speeches were read uh, from people that I'm sure had read them years before. Uh, They read them, and they did not read them very well. Uh, They were dated in in many ways. And the high point of the service was to be wreaths brought and placed on this makeshift memorial. And as they did so, they laid those wreaths. They were plastic flowers covered in dust, that somebody had probably pulled out of their garage or their attic at the last minute. And I I sat there and I thought, how sad this was. Because we were there to, to honor the lives of men and women who'd given their lives in the service of this country. Men and women that had given the greatest sacrifice and to me it just seemed like they deserved so much better. But you know, that's the way holidays can be. Holidays always start out with good purposes and and great intent, but after a while, it becomes another day off work, a day off school, or a day to to spend with family and have lots of fun. Think about this Thanksgiving past. How much of Thanksgiving did you actually spend giving thanks? And how much did you spend having just a good time with family, eating a lot, and, and watching football? Our cultural celebration of Christmas Sometimes it is so far removed from the day that Christ was born. You know, there are parts and things that I love to see around Christmas. And I remember when Cheryl and I lived in Chicago, if you've never been to Macy's on Michigan Avenue, they do those store window displays with the animatronic uh, setups. It's just, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Macy's in downtown Cincinnati used to do the same thing. And I always love to see those. But you know, if the shepherds that we read about today showed up at Macy's, they probably wouldn't be allowed inside. Security would come to to escort them outside. And so we need to remember Christmas in a better, in a different way. Most of us, again, we have some sense about our inadequacy. Most of us know what it feels like to be a misfit or an outsider, a square peg in a round hole. Let me give you one more story, and I'll, I'll close with this. When my dad, uh, when I was a a little guy, my dad used to get tickets from Marathon that he worked for from up in Finley, Ohio, uh, to go to the Cincinnati Reds ball games. Now, I was only three years old, June the 24th, 1970, when the Reds played their last game at Crosley Field against the San Francisco Giants. They picked up home plate and they moved it to uh, Riverfront Stadium where I saw most of the games that we went to. Hank Aaron hit the first ever home run uh, out of the ballpark. And then in 2003, of course, they moved to the Great American Ballpark. But there are probably many of you this morning that remember Crosley Field. It's just that square piece of ground between Finley and Western Avenue, York Street and McLean, uh, down in the Queensgate section of Cincinnati. 28,000 seats, first 
ballpark ever to be lit for night games. But I remember one of the, the fan favorites, even after they moved, were the nights they had double headers. Remember those? You get two games for the price of one. And uh, one of those times, one of the most enjoyable parts of an evening was an intermission that happened between two of those games. There was a radio-controlled flying club that brought out their planes to demonstrate during the intermission. Now, you got to understand, there were five guys that brought their planes, and these were things that these men had worked in, in their garages, workshops, and their basements all winter long. I mean, they had poured themselves into these planes. And the first guy comes, and he, he puts his plane down on home plate, and he spins the propeller. Nothing. He spins it, and he spins it, and he spins it, and nothing happens. He keeps spinning it, and finally one of the other guys comes up and, and taps him on the shoulder to let him know, you know, there, there's other ones back here. You can't go. We'll go. The guy picks up his plane and heads back, and the crowd cheers for him. Not, not a happy cheer, but kind of a, a mocking cheer. Well, the second guy brings his plane out, and, and he, he turns the propeller, and it starts right away. And he takes it out and he heads it out toward the, uh, the scoreboard. Now, if you remember Oak Crosley Field, it didn't have a jumbotron out there, but it had one of those old scoreboards that during the innings, uh, between innings, they, somebody would come out and they would hang up the old signs on it. And as this plane is heading for this scoreboard, you could see the guy at home plate with his remote control just hammering on it and jamming on it, and bam, it hits the scoreboard and just disintegrates into hundreds of pieces, and the crowd, it just gets more excited and cheers. The third guy comes out, and he starts his plane, and he takes it up, and he does rolls and twists. He does vertical... Uh, flight on it. It rolls over and it's heading straight for the ground. And once again, here's the guy with his beloved plane and he's got the remote and he's jamming on it and flipping levers to no avail and it just nosedives behind second plate and it too bursts in all kinds of pieces. Well, that's three out of five. Now the fourth guy comes up but his starts well. He takes it off, does all the maneuvers, takes it off behind center field toward I-75, brings it on a roll, comes back around the cheap seats in the top part of the stadium, brings it around. He misjudges the distance, and he hits a light pole out by I-75. The plane falls, and all these kids come out of the projects, and pretty soon you see one come carrying a wing, one come carrying you know, another piece of this plane, totally destroyed, and the crowd, it's like watching the, the Roman Colosseum. They're ready for blood. They're just up cheering and screaming. They're so excited to see all this destruction. And the last guy, he's hesitant, but he starts his plane, starts it up, does the rolls, the pitches, the tosses, does the same thing, goes out, rounds it, brings it around, lands it perfectly, takes it around the base pass, and brings it to stop exactly on home plate. And the crowd, boo, boo, they wanted to see something more. Some of you know what it's like to play to a crowd like that. Your failures get mocked, and your successes aren't good enough. Maybe you grew up with a, a, a parent for whom a B-plus wouldn't cut it, and you tried harder and harder to do better. Or some of you might have had a, a superstar brother or sister, and you could never quite achieve like them. Some of you grew up in a youth group 
where you didn't get the recognition because you weren't the Bible kid that knew where all the verses were. You didn't have all the right answers. Some of you know what it's like not to be chosen. Some of you know what it's like to not make the cut. And, and you feel, you know, Bill, if you were to describe my life, I got voted off the island a long time ago. To me, it's interesting. And what, one of the reasons I love the story of the shepherds so much is that not only did God go to the marginalized, it's Luke that wrote this down. Luke is the only Gentile gospel writer in the New Testament. He knew what it was like to be in a Jewish society where he didn't fit in. He was an outsider, and he's the only gospel writer that writes about the shepherds. And in his gospel, he also writes about women. He writes about the poor. He writes about the Samaritans, all those in the culture that would be pushed to the extreme and that they would know God's glory and grace. We are told in James 2, 5, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, hasn't God chosen the poor in the eyes of this world to be rich in faith and to inherit a kingdom that he promised those who love him? You see, that's only half the story. It's not just enough to experience that. It's not just enough for it to flow into us. It has to flow through us as well. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let's continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. When's the last time you spoke the name of Jesus to someone at work, in your family, or in your neighborhood? 2 Corinthians 5, 20 says, We are therefore God's ambassadors, as though he were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So let me ask you, who are the shepherds in your life? Who are the people that you would honestly like to avoid? Who are those that you don't trust? Maybe those that don't live up to your standards Maybe they're people that you go more than a little out of your way not to be around. And if you are around them, you deal with them as politely but as quickly as you can so you can move on. Friends, it's not enough just to experience God's grace. Those who receive God's grace, they went and they told everybody they could find because they had been touched and they had been changed. And may that be our story as well. Would you stand with me this morning? And would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we don't understand how you could love us this much. How you could find us living on the fringe, on the margin of this world. Sometimes on the outside of our own families. Father, you look within us beyond our inadequacy and our own sense of just not measuring up. And you see the life that was created in your image. Father, I don't know exactly if today were the first day you came, who the angels would announce that to. But God, I'm thankful that through your word, that your spirit has announced it to each one of us. And Father, we want to come before you this morning, not only to celebrate as we have, but to continue to be transformed by your grace, to be your ambassadors 
outpost in a foreign world, taking your love, your word to those who need it the most. Father, I pray for the individual here this morning that has never heard your story and, and maybe today they're hearing even the story of the shepherds for the first time. Father, I ask that your spirit would just compel them with the great love you have for them that today would be the day they exchanged their sinfulness for forgiveness that only comes through you. I ask that this be the day they enter the waters of baptism to be washed and made new, to become a new creation in you. Father, for those that don't have a church home and maybe in their celebration today, you've kind of compelled them to say, this is the place. I want you to not only belong, but I want you to learn. I want you to grow. I want you to have a family here. Father, help them to make that decision as well. Whatever you place on their heart, I commit them to you in Jesus' name. Amen.